2S Extra with Dwayne Rose and Kevin Laramie on the Sports Podcasting Network. And welcome to 2S Extra. I'm Dwayne Rollins along with Kevin Laramie. Joining us today on 2S Extra is a very special guest, Richard Petty, the former president and CEO of Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, the man who was responsible for the birth of Major League Soccer in Canada. So that's a pretty big guest, Kevin. Absolutely. He went in details for about a 20-minute conversation about uh, the launch of TFC, the launch of on a corporate side of a new team, the fans, uh, the difference between uh, the actual sports trying to selling them corporate-wise to the actual public. A great conversation with Richard. Yeah, and, and we talked, you know, about the successes and the failures. He has a book out right now, which uh, he'll explain explain about it in, in, when he gets on the air, but uh, the, the subtitle of that book talks about successes and failures, so we use that as a launching point to talk about TFC, because there have been successes with TFC. Um, we, we tend to look at the, at the team as being this disaster, because we're focused entirely on the pitch, whereas if you look at the business practices behind this, and what they did to influence Major League Soccer in the early days, it was a tremendous success story from a business perspective. That doesn't thrill the fan very much, but it, it certainly is an interesting story to tell nonetheless, and, and Richard was on to help us understand that. Uh, don't worry, we asked him about what he would have done differently as well, and uh, you'll get to hear that. And I guess before we talk anymore, and we're going to come back after that, and, and uh, Kevin and I will talk about the, the PDL stuff that's going on right now that I reported last night in CSN um, involving how the PDL will no longer be allowed to, to compete in Ontario following the uh, 2016 season. And uh, we're going to talk about Mark Santos, who was uh, named today a USL head coach position, which has caught a little people off guard. And we'll do a little bit of an MLS playoff uh, primer as well. But uh, before we do any of that, Kevin, let's just bring Richard on the line and uh, listen to that conversation. I think as a leader, there's, there's three major things. You've got to be a great communicator. You've got to be great at recognizing people. And you've got to be a great coach or developer of people. And welcome back to 2S Extra. I'm Dwayne Rollins along with Kevin Laramay. Joining us on the line is Richard Petty, the former president and CEO of Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. Thanks for joining us, Richard. Uh, my pleasure. You have a book out. It's called 21, Le- 21 Leadership Lessons, Successes and Failures and Discoveries from a Life in Business and Sport. Tell us about that book and why you wrote it now. Well, I had uh, my first book out two years ago, which is called Dream Job. And you know, like so many retired CEOs, you think you've got a book in you, and and I did think I did, and and wrote the bestseller. When I was touring it from coast to coast, literally from Halifax to British Columbia, um, a lot of people said, "So are you going to write another book?" And I said, "Oh no, I'm like the Kentucky Wildcats basketball team. I'm one and <laughs> done." And um, but I started listening to young leaders, millennials in particular. They had a lot of questions. Uh, you know, what books do you read? I really liked your quote. Jeez, what happens if I don't have a dream job, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, you know what? Uh, I think in this 21st century, and that's why I picked the 21, that young people going from young person to young adult, and that jumping off spot's about 21, that I think I had some messages for them. So I decided to write another one, and it came out about four weeks ago. And that's uh, available at bookstores everywhere, I assume? Yeah, and online, I it purposely, yeah, I priced it uh, for business books today with the American dollar. They're over $30 in hardcover. Uh, mine is twenty three ninety five, and the uh, ebook, I priced it nine ninety nine because I really 
want to, I want to get the book in as many young leaders' hands as possible. Okay, that's great. All right, I want to take me, take me back to the mid part of the last decade, and it was a bleak time in Canadian soccer. There wasn't a lot of hope. No one really saw MLS on the horizon, but yet somewhere at MLSE, obviously, there were people that believed that, that it was possible to do what many thought was impossible, to sell domestic soccer to Canadians. Tell me why you thought that MLSE could do that. Well, it actually went back to about uh, 1992, 1991, when I was running Skydome. Uh, we hosted a, a soccer weekend. Uh, so I started seeing, geez, it was difficult to put it on. It was complicated. Uh, Canadian Soccer Association made it difficult. Uh, but I was intrigued by it. And I was writing a strategic plan for, for Skydome, and I actually looked into bringing an MLS team in the early 90s. But they were having real challenges uh, interesting, the NFL, yeah, the National Football League Players Association was taking them to court on the single entity concept where, you know, the t- teams are owned by the league and it was a way to control player salaries. And so it was kind of a real mess. and It was losing lots of money. So I did not pursue it. But one of our disciplines at Maple Leaf Sports was every year in November to do a strategic plan. You know, companies do annual plans. Very few companies do uh, really good strategic plans, and almost no sports franchises do strategic plans. So one of my jobs every year was, what, what ideas am I going to have to grow the enterprise value of Maple Leaf Sports? And I thought back to MLS. And by that time, you know, they had a, a really good young uh, commissioner and Don Garber who came from the NFL. They had really good owners in Kraft and Anschutz, the Hunts. They had a really good collective bargaining agreement. The single entity was now resolved. And when I was doing writing the strategic plan, the NHL was on strike and player salaries are over 70% of revenue. So I really was intrigued with that. So literally I phoned up uh, Don Garber cold. It's interesting uh, when you say you're from Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment and you're the CEO, people will, will <laughs> answer your calls. And uh, I said, I'd like to come down and, and make a pitch and talk to you about buying a franchise. And so I flew into New York on say, a Tuesday night. I had breakfast with Gary Bettman the next morning. We went through what we had to go through. And Gary says, uh, do you want to have lunch? And I said, no, I'm going over to buy a soccer team. And he said, oh, you're not. I should give you one for free. And um, so I went over there. Don Garber, Mark Abbott were awesome. Uh, they saw the benefit of Maple Leaf Sports getting behind it. And we started doing the deal. Why I thought it would succeed was a whole bunch of reasons. One, the demographics. I like the demographics of the city back in 92. They'd only got better. As you know, football is the number one sport in the world. Can, uh, Toronto is one of the most diverse cities in the world. Lots of soccer fans and, and educated soccer fans. I'm going to call it. I'll jump back and forth between soccer and football is the word. Um, unlike basketball, when we brought basketball out in you know like 1995, they really didn't know basketball but people in in canada and toronto especially no football so we had a good market uh we had a good league a good commissioner a good collective bargaining agreement uh one of the things that was key is it had to be in a great location we did testing york university wasn't good downsview wasn't good and i had to have it at bemo field and working with uh, the mayor then uh david miller who's a big footy fan as you know uh, he, he went along with it. We built BMO field. And the final thing was we had Maple Leaf sports entertainment going behind it. So we could cross sell it with the Leafs, the Raptors, 
you know, we had like 11 websites. We had two television networks. We had the Jumbotron at games. There's so many ways for us to promote it. And, you know, I, I brought Paul, uh, Paul Byrne over, who was doing a great job in ticketing. I didn't have Tom and Selmy to control of it. Um, you know, I, I knew it would be a success. And it wasn't a big investment. It was 10 million bucks, which seems like a lot, but it's probably worth 170 million bucks today, U.S. And uh, I remember, and I'm going on for a long time explaining this story <laughs> to you, but I remember listening to the fan one night as we launched it. And, and you know, I'd studied three leagues. You know, the history of, of football in Toronto had been horrible. And leagues had gone under and teams had gone under. And they were playing at, you know, little dinky fields with a couple hundred people in the fans, in the stands. And the past owner, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, came out and said, oh, it'll fail. Well, it didn't fail. You know, it hasn't done well in the pitch but it's been a great investment from day one. It has been again, and it's interesting you mentioned Paul Byrne. I, I, I talked to a colleague down in the states who, who calls Paul Byrne the most influential person no one knows in MLS history because of the, the uh, work that was done. In <laughs> I'm sure Paul will. Well, you know, that. it's really true. The you think back to that time, MLS MLS was really stagnant. Uh, there hadn't been really any franchises, you know. I think the Anschutz owned a couple of teams. The Hunts owned a couple of teams. You know, it just we, the owners were engaged. We had a good commissioner, a good collective bargaining agreement, but it was not doing it. And by us uh, putting it into into Toronto, we became the best practices. And you know, Portland did it, and Philadelphia did it, and so many Seattle's done it so well. They really studied what we did, and uh, you know, real hats off to Paul. Uh, did a real nice job. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one thing that really fascinates me, too, with the MLSC, especially in the mid-90s, is how the new different sports arrive and how it was different to sell sports to different companies and the difference between the selling of all the sports, basketball, hockey, and uh, soccer, football. How can you explain to us the difference or how difficult it is to sell each different sport to the corporate crowd and to the fans themselves? Well, you know, the beauty of sports is the demographics and psychographics are, are, tend to be quite different from sport to sport. You look at uh, the Toronto Raptors, and they look just, the fans look just like Toronto. They look like the people on the street. You know, when you, when you go to the big square where we have the big jumbotron outside, you know, that, it, during the playoffs, that crowd is much different than the crowd that's out for the Leafs. The Leaf tickets, you know, they, what did we know? I think something like, 40% of our season seat holders on the Leafs had had tickets before 1970. I, I saw in my first book I talk about it, I, I went and read the records of the season seat holders from the Leafs in like 1931. And it was all the, the, the you know, the Eatons, all the big uh, families, rich families of Toronto. So it, it was very much a business crowd, uh, a more affluent crowd. Then you've got the younger, hipper, uh, more diverse uh, basketball crowd. And then you've got football. Football surprised me a bit. It, there's a lot of EPL followers in the season seat holders. And I thought the crowd would be more diverse. It's, frankly, it's more white than I imagined and more young male than I imagined. But it's still a great crowd. So you, with those different demographics and psychographics, you go find corporate partners that align with that, that want to reach that crowd. And and, you know, when you're selling the Raptors and the Leafs, they're, they're, they're a tier one franchise, great, great leagues, great brands. And TFC, you know, at the start, we had a little bit of trouble. Dave Hopkinson uh, was skeptic, very pessimistic. But, uh, you know, it just 
you know, get lightning in a bottle, and and we've done well. You mentioned too that it was not necessarily easy on the pitch in the beginning. How does that affect the corporate side of it? How does the fact that the results are not necessarily present uh, affect the pitch that you can be doing to those big corporate companies? Well, I think at the start, no one expects you to win. Uh, and, you know, we that first couple of years, uh, you know, we did that. Remember, we were, I think, a tie or a win away from making the playoffs like five years ago. We went into into New York and got beat five, five nil. And that was a real setback. And then when Brecky came in, man, we really, uh, lost, uh, lost our momentum. And then we changed general managers way too much. And now more recently we've changed presidents. Um, you know, I, I think the, the, you know, the fans started getting a little upset. The sponsors started getting a little upset, but you know, each year you, you sell hope and you invest in new players and, uh, If you give them great service, I, I believe that whether it's fans or or sponsors, uh, service sells and service resells. So you got to offer them a good thing, and it was always still a good experience. And uh, you know, for the longest time, I thought it was the best in in the early years, the best sports experience in town because it was so authentic. There was nothing programmed about it. There was no entertainment between timeouts because there isn't any, and you know, not, even nothing at 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 the half. And it was the fans, and as you know, the especially the fans in the in the South, bleachers were terrific, and I think a lot of people came to see them, see them entertain. Richard, you, your subtitle, your book is "Successes and Failures," so we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the lack lack of success on the pitch. Looking back in hindsight, is twenty twenty, of course. What would you have done different to ensure that it was more successful in those early years, uh, to to drive that momentum forward? Yeah, you for sure. I mean, they made the playoffs for the first time this year. Um, you know, it wasn't money because, you know, first of all, there was a cap, and that's all anyone could do. And then there was the Beckham rule where you could have one Disney player, then now it's got to three. Um, you know, we got into the Disney players. I think the big thing was we did not hire enough soccer IQ. Uh, yeah, we had Mo. Um You know, he's a wonderful career in in uh, in Europe, in, in Scotland. Uh, but we needed more of that. And the other thing we did is we we changed coaches way too often. And I talk about that in my new book. I, I, I'll fault basketball. I'll fault all the leagues. I mean, they just, in basketball, they just fired Kevin McHale, and the team was, what, four and seven. He took them to the Western Finals that year. Mm. And after 11 games, they fired the guy. Well, we were no better in basketball, hockey. And football, we were letting our coaches go too too often, and and I think my guys, I think Mo and Tom, they thought, well, you know, the league, you don't have a lot of continuity in the league. No one has guaranteed contracts, so you know, all the teams change players every year. Well, no, you don't. Um, you change some, but you've got to build a base. You have to be patient. And so I think our biggest failure was two: one, we didn't have enough football IQ and, and experience in the corporation. And secondly, we were too impatient at players, coaches, general managers. So, so maybe putting some a level between Tom and Selmy and Mo Johnson with someone that was had a football mind might have been a, a way to go there. Well, you know, yeah, and you know, listen, I gave Tom uh, football because I hoped that one day he'd be the president of MLSE, and he had to get experience working in leagues and get experience working with teams. Uh, but you know, he was learning, and boy, I made mistakes with Leafs and Raptors, so. I'm not throwing Tom under the bus, but, uh, 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I really step back about them to do. I can remember one time saying, guys, like, we're changing over more than half the team every year. And they said, oh, that's MLS. My gut was we needed more patience. But, uh, you know, I gave them rope and let them do it. And they were doing a heck of a job on the business side. And, and I did believe the league is it, the league is, is a very competitive league. You know, almost every year, you know, any, any team can win it, especially if they're doing the right thing. So, um, so I went with it, and it, in hindsight, it was a mistake. I'm curious where MLSE saw the TFC fitting in, in their spectrum. I mean, the, the Leafs are the Leafs, obviously, but do you see them closer to the Leafs Raptors or closer to the Marlies? Well, you know, it was such a small investment for us that I had no trouble selling it. And then, then, then the league, and then the owners saw, geez, what great fun it was and, and, you know, what a good business it was. And it was resonating with the citizens and fans of Toronto, so they liked that. You know, it has appreciated, wow, you know, 17 times more than it, it was bought at. Um, we always believed it could – I'm going to back up a bit. I think there's a number of tiers in the city. Tier one is the Blue Jays, the Raptors, the NHL. Tier two is the Argos. And if there's an Argo fan listening, they're going to say they're tier one. They're not. You know, it just, they just aren't. And, you know, will the new ownership get them back up to tier one? Because they were very clearly tier one. Uh, but they slipped. And so at tier one, and that's where TFC is, and, and that's where the Marlies are. But our ambitions, and my belief to this day, is football can be a, definitely a tier one in this city. In fact, at the at Primetime Sports Symposium two weeks ago, I went to Brian Burke and stuff, and I said, guys, you should have uh, a panel that debates this question. What will be the number one sport in Toronto in 20 years? And have a football expert, a basketball, a baseball, and a hockey expert uh, at and, and have them defend it. And I can tell you, I, I wouldn't mind sitting there and defending and making a case for uh, football being the number one sport in 20 years. Um, we'll end it with this. It, it, it's a unique sport in the sense that it has a, a national team, a nationalistic sort of fever behind it. And, and there is always those within the soccer community that want you to also build forward a national team and help that national team forward. Is that important to, to TFC, do you think, to, to try and help and build the, the sport as a whole in the country? Well, I remember, I think when we launched, Canada was ranked about 71st in the world. Are they over 100 right now? I can't remember where they are. Um, and that, I want to yeah. We had, yeah, we had plans to, to build an academy, which we've done. And, um, you know, we, we really thought, and, and, you know, listen, I was a champion of football, but I'm, I'm as big a rookie and a neophyte as Tom was. And, and our whole company was. So I'm not going to try to put myself as cross as a football guy. What I, what I was doing, I was investing in what I thought was a good business, and I became a football fan. Um, no, I kind of thought, okay, we're 71. I bet in three or four years we'll be down to 40 because we're going to develop young, young Canadians, and it's going to help the national team. Well, now fast forward, um, you know, Montreal's there, Vancouver's there. There are cities like uh, Ottawa that are developing second tier. I, I think say the three MLS teams should be the engine that drives the national program. I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed we're a hundreds and I, I don't quite get that. I, I don't know, um, you know, the, the Academy, the TSC, I, I'm not close enough to know how good the players are that are coming out of there. 
Uh, I don't know what's going on. I know Vancouver committed very early, good for them. Uh, so I don't know. I am surprised we're so far back, but I don't know why. Richard Petty, the former CEO and president of Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment. We thank you very much again. The name of that book? Uh, 21 Leadership Lessons, available in all stores and online. Thanks again for joining us. Okay, real pleasure, guys. This could be your publicity spot. Advertise on a sports podcasting network and reach tens of thousands of sports fans every single week. Sportspodcastingnetwork at gmail.com for quotes and inquiries. And welcome back, and thanks again to uh, Richard for, for taking some time today. Um, I guess, Kevin, before we get into our main conference, we should talk about that a little bit. Um, what did you take away from the interview from uh, from Richard? Well, he's honest. He identified what he thought he would have done differently, too, when it wasn't necessarily going well, uh, the mistakes that he thought he would have done without necessarily throwing people under the bus. He, he actually identified uh, the early mistake as a young CEO back then when he, he was a part of it. So uh, it's interesting, too, to learn about how the product became, how he was interested in the franchise and how the investment, original investment was $10 million and how uh, all that unfolded. And uh, it's very interesting to get the, the behind the scene look with hindsight about, uh, what, almost 10 years later. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure there'll be a few TFC fans out there that would have wanted me to be more yelly. Um, guys, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Richard was gracious enough to join us, so I'm not going to to treat him like, a, like he's hostile or something. So, uh, but... At the same time, I think if you listen carefully to what he said, he admitted to some mistakes. He admitted to mistakes along, you know, making certain hires and and giving too much rope and all that. And you may argue that that's hindsight or that's convenient for him to say those things now. But nonetheless, I think that he's still saying it and he's still admitting that those those errors happen. And I didn't take away from that 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 he was trying to hide from the mistakes that were made in terms of not hiring people that knew the sport. Something we all were saying at the time. But it would have been nice for them to listen then. But however, it's nice that they they have heard that and are admitting that now. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed that, and uh, we'll we'll move on now. Um, Mark DeSantos, we all big know news, he was leaving. Big news. We we knew he was going to Kansas City. We just didn't know where in the hierarchy he was going to be. <clears throat> yeah, and um, we all assumed it was an assistant position. He's going in as the head coach of Swope. Is it Swoop or Swope Park? I don't even – Swope Park, Park Rangers. Rangers. Yeah, which is a strange – I assume it's a suburb, Swope Park. Um, it's the SKC's USL team. It's SKC2 basically. So uh, that to some is going to offend a lot of NASL lovers out there because they're going to be looking at this as why would Mark DeSantos take a step down um, when he was in the NASL? Well, um, clearly in his mind is a step down. Yeah. So the, what does that mean to NASL and uh, what does that mean in terms of how those two leagues exist and, and, and all that? I, I would argue this, Kevin, and I think that probably – to me, this is a position that is a better position than an assistant position at Kansas City because he has complete control over a team. And this suggests to me that Sporting Kansas City is bringing him in with a mind that he may be their next manager, that they are going to give him a position of authority and control so they can see what he can do with a team and what they can do with with prospects for the MLS team. He'll be working with some MLS players as well um, to try and mold them. Now, the other thing about this too, and I'd be careful from, from MDS's position, is they may view him as a, as a youth coach though because he has a lot of experience in that end. In Brazil, he was on the youth coach side of things um you know the nasl was a bit 
different gig. And I, as I said in the last podcast, one of the areas that he may need to sort of work on uh, before he takes the step is how to work with big egos, with big players, with with players that have played at really, really high levels. I mean, yeah. Julian at, at Ottawa Fury, but Julian's kind of at the end of his career and, and is not a, a guy that's going to really fight against him, if you know what I mean. Like how to handle a big personality is is not necessarily something DeSantis has done yet. No, and Julian doesn't necessarily have a big ego as well. We, we had him on the show a couple of weeks ago and he's such a nice gentleman, very mellow, happy, zen fellow. So uh, he's not the type of personality clash that you would expect sometimes to have in Major League Soccer. Yeah, and, and so you might not get that experience with this. Um, I, I would have to think that there will be some people in the NASL that will have to be concerned about this a little bit because, I mean, it does look like he's taking a, side, a sideways step at the very least and getting out of NASL, getting out of a fully professional team to go to, uh, to what they will you know, dismiss as being a farm team. No, yeah, maybe. But when you look at USL, it is officially now the fastest growing sports league in North America. It doesn't matter what sport. It's the fastest growing sports league in North America. And having Mark Dos Santos there uh, with his uh, tactical knowledge in this league, trying to shape a young squad, uh, there's a lot of potential in that move. Clearly, in his mind, he does not see it as a step down. So for him to go to Kansas City in a different type of organization, a, a bigger organization than Ottawa, uh, it's going to be interesting to see if there's players following him to the USL now. Uh, those are a lot of good questions, and I can't wait to see him play against FC Montreal right here and be able to follow the progress of the Swope, Swope Park Rangers. I, it's going to take a, a learning curve to get used to it, but yeah, the Swope Park Rangers. Just call them the Rangers, I guess. Um, yeah, I guess that's what you need to do, right? Yeah, uh, it's kind of a daring name. I'm kind of dividing certain groups, anyway. Um, I, the one down point from a Canadian perspective on this is that he will no longer be molding young Canadians. There won't be very many of any young Canadians on that roster that he'll be working with. Um, that's unfortunate from a Canadian development standpoint. I would have liked to see maybe keeping him in the system somehow. But at the same time, if it advances his career and gets him to a higher level on a coaching perspective, he's already, he's admitted in the past that one of his dreams is to one day coach the Canadian national team, then, then that's going to have a long-term benefit anyway. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. Um, a lot of interesting topics here. It's certainly not where I anticipated. I totally thought he would be an assistant there, but uh, I guess not. And that this is, you know, it does sort of speak to his desire to run a team, that he's not going to go anywhere unless he's running the team. He's running this team. So that is something to consider as well. If you go back to last week when we had Steven Sender on, and even myself two weeks ago on 2FSX, I talked about how. For us, Mark Dos Santos was a head coach. He's a leader of men. He's a uh, talent molder. He likes to generate good result with not necessarily. He likes to make chicken salad out of chicken, you know. So it's going to be great to see him, what he can do in USL with a, a blooming league, a new team, a new project, and that you have to follow the tactics of the big club. Yes, but it's going to be interesting to see that happen. And MDS is a head coach. And that's why I'm actually. More happy that he's there than the assistant at SKC to uh, uh, agree with your point on that. But Mark Dos Santos is a future MLS head coach. Don't forget about that. And who knows what happened with Peter Vermees if there's another season with the disappointment next year. Maybe he's the guy close. Maybe if not the first guy in line, he's uh, for sure second. Yeah, and on the other side of that, of course, is what the Fury are going to do. They've scheduled a, a news conference for 
for today at at two o'clock. We don't know who it is yet. I'm just looking at the speculation here. Uh, I've heard a few names uh, thrown about in terms of who will be in there next year. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, I would uh, go with Martin Nash. That would be the obvious choice of uh, continuing. Uh, in my but mind. it was. But it was confirmed yesterday by reported yesterday by the Ottawa Sun that it won't be an internal hire. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. So. Uh, there's a lot, a couple rumors. I'm just looking for the name. I'd slip my mind right now. I'm looking Thomas at the Rongen? Ottawa. Uh, no, 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 it's not Thomas Rongan. It's uh, Danglish. Okay. Yeah. So at any rate, there, we'll find it at 2 o'clock. And the Fury are working with us right now um, to, uh, to, to set something up. I, I emailed them yesterday, and they said that they would work with us to get an interview with uh, that head coach, uh, whoever he may be. Um, and we'll find out in about two hours. Uh, we'll get him next week and have a conversation with him on the show. So uh, we'll leave that well enough alone for now. It's going to be interesting transition for the Fury. It's interesting. Well, we can talk about that, like the fact that it was, um, it's not going to be an internal hire. That has concerned some people in Ottawa. They would have really liked to see DeSantos' vision continued from someone that worked under him. What does that mean to the people that worked under him? Maybe they thought, maybe Martin Nash thought that he was going to get a chance here. Does he now become, you know, embattled or whatever and, and try and resist uh, the changes that are coming in. I mean, is this a good thing to hire outside, Kevin? I don't know. Will the outsider coach come in with the the, the will of continuity? Will he want to continue the work of Dos Santos? Or, usually, when a new coach takes over, he likes to bring his own ideas, his own philosophy of the game with him. Will that be a clash with what's present? Will that be a clash with the players that are present with the club? Different system means different players that can be used at different position. Is it compatible? Those are all questions that you have to ask yourself when you get somebody from the outside. When it's somebody from the inside, you don't necessarily ask yourself those questions. So uh, that's a lot of doubt that would come to the club with somebody from the outside. And uh, I don't know if it's the right way to... Maybe... It depends who it is. If it's somebody that we know has a philosophy that's close to what the Fury has right now, maybe it could be different. But uh, from the looks of it, maybe it's going to be difficult to uh, keep all the players in that club too. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, Tommy Heinemann's uh, supposed to make an announcement today about his uh, future as well. And the speculation there is he's going to land either in FC Miami or um, the Oklahoma City team that weird Oklahoma City team that's owned by the Spanish team that's a different story altogether we might have to talk about one day but at any rate um I that is the fear that I have with the Fury is that they're going to become this great sort of program that develops good players and 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 sort of punches above its weight but struggles to maintain its players once they reach a certain threshold um that's maybe the Canadian in me coming out that because it's it's in Canada because it's in you know a smaller city in Canada uh, that the players may look to play there until they get their career back on track. And then, you know, once they get some success in Ottawa, move on. And, and if that's the case with Heinemann moving on today, you can't begrudge the guy because I've heard that there's a lot of money coming into Miami and that maybe he's getting a paycheck down there and no one wants to, you know, NASL guys don't make a lot of money. So if they're going to get enough or double their salary or something, no and you're coached by Nesta, that, right? At the same time. And you'd be coached yeah. by Nesta. So that's if you like Nesta, hey, you could be coached by him while playing close to a beach. So who knows? Yeah. Yeah, I still remember watching him sit in the stands by himself in Beemo Field on a freezing day and as one of his last games of his career, no one around him, no one knew who he was. I'm like, oh my God, this is kind of sad that this legend's career is ending standing in the pouring rain in Toronto with no one around him. Anyway, um, <laughs> different story for a different day. I remember when he was video coach for the impact. Oh, wait, I don't remember because I've never actually seen it. But yeah, uh, we'll see if... Uh, 
He can be a coach in Miami. That's another talking point that we never brought it up. Uh, a rookie coach, Nina Sal, with a rookie team. Uh, right now, outside of having great players that we don't know are going to come to the program yet, it's going to be a struggle for Miami next year. Yeah, the NSL expansion teams are, are, are an interesting sort of mix. The NSL is always intriguing. Um, you know, say this about it. They are entertaining. Uh, that Oklahoma City team, which if, if you've ever seen the video out there, it's got like the, the lightning bolts and all that sort of stuff. It's owned by the, the team in Spain, and I forget the name right now, so I for, forgive me. But um, they uh, just that affiliate model again, which has caused so much controversy with Chivas and with NYCFC, well, that's coming into NASL now. So uh, we'll be curious to see how that works out. And then the uh, the Miami model appears to be very much in the Cosmos mold. That they're looking to make Cosmos South down there and uh, going to spend some money, going to bring in some names and uh, well, work for the Cosmos. Uh, they have won the championship twice out of three years. So uh, we'll see if that works for them and uh, whether it's sustainable. But it's certainly going to be fun to watch. Uh, one news that you broke last night, Dwayne, that you wanted to talk about concerning USL PDL team in uh, Canada. Yeah, uh, well, in Ontario anyway. In Ontario wanna, specifically, yes. Um, I only know in Ontario for sure, although I have some good indication that this is going to be a national uh, policy here. Uh, there was a letter sent out to the four PDL teams in Ontario. Uh, that would be Thunder Bay, Kitchener-Waterloo, or the defending champions of PDL. Um, the London, uh, London City, and uh, TFC Academy. Those are the four teams that played in PDL last year. A letter went out to them on the 18th that said that next season, 2016, will be the last year that they will be permitted to have what's called playing out privileges, which means playing out of your district. Um, they won't be sanctioned to play out in PDL after the 2016 season. In layman's terms, that means that 2016 is the last season that PDL will be operating in the province of Ontario. Um, the letter is in said did also indicate that uh, that it, this was national language that would be changing. So that suggests to me that the Calgary program um, will also be facing the same sort of restrictions soon. And, and what they're doing is they're trying to push these teams into the domestic pathways. They want the four um, Canadian teams, four Ontario teams, I should say, to be playing in League One Ontario. And there's one exception there that I'm going to talk about in a minute. Um, the Calgary team, I'm not too sure about. Again, I don't know any details out there because it was only an Ontario document that I saw, so I don't want to speak with any certainty with that. But certainly, as I said, there was was language in that that sort of suggested that that might be happening. But uh, we, we'll just leave that well enough alone for now and focus on the Ontario teams. Now, three of those Ontario teams, the, the TFC Academy already knew this was happening. They were granted a, a temporary um, ability to play in, in USL. And in fact, allowing them to play in 2016 is an extension of what they were originally going to be permitted. So they're actually getting longer time there than they anticipated by by this letter. Because last year, as I reported on CSN, they were told that they were given a one year uh, in and then they had to go out and go back to League One Ontario. Uh, the TFC Academy um, didn't do very well in PDL this year, uh, didn't do very very well in League One Ontario this year, so maybe they should just focus their efforts on one league. But at any rate, um, the other three programs are going to be more interesting because there might be some pushback to this because, you know, there's a reason these guys have chosen to go PDL. And it has a lot to do with the politics of the province and the politics of the development pathway in the province. Um, you know, London's a mess politically. I, I think I've talked about this in the show before. we got the Whitecaps thing in there now you got the pdl team in there you've got like seven programs for where there should be two but at any rate it's it's like there's a lot, 
lot of people pulling in 16 different directions in that pro- in that part of the the province and I can't see them um, not putting up a bit of a stink over this because they'll believe in their heart of hearts that the PDL is the right m- model for them and that the OSA people are fools and League One Ontario is a doomed disaster that's never going to succeed because that's kind of the attitude that you hear. Like you do, you hear stuff like that when you when you talk to these people that there's just this much dismissal. Like the, people don't communicate in this province sometimes when it comes to this stuff and it's frustrating as hell and that's why – the OSA and the CSA have to get heavy-handed sometimes because people just refuse to cooperate with each other. Um, the other part of it, too, they, I think KW, their proximity to the to the GTA, um, for those who don't know, KW is about an hour west of Toronto. It's in half an hour west of the western tip of, of the GTA. It's not very far. Um, it, it would be very sensible for them to join and come in with a league where they would drastically reduce their travel costs. Um, I don't know whether they're going to fight back as much. Uh, I, I do think there's a lot of logic to KW joining their TFC Academy. They're, they're just going to do what they're told. Um, the, the big problem, though, is Thunder Bay. Because those that know the geography of Canada know that Thunder Bay is like, well, it, it's crazy far away. It's like drive, like London to Prague away. Like it's it's a long, long trip. You'd have to fly and whether you, you know, you'd have to fly when or you drive, how bus. long is it? A couple of days? If I were to get in my car right now, if I had a car, anyone want to give me a car? If I were to borrow a car right now <laughs> and start driving to Thunder Bay, I would get there at about noon tomorrow. Okay, if, so you have I a did, choice. Okay, so you can go to Florida or you can go to Thunder Bay. Your choice. Yeah. Uh, Assuming, you know, if that's if I drove straight through. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's, not, not a, it's not a bus trip you can do in, in a day and go back. Like you're, you're talking like the, the team would have to come down for four or five days at a time probably and then, you know, play several games in a cluster and then go back home. And then teams would have to probably go up two or three teams at a time and play in a cluster. Like you have to be very creative in your scheduling to, to include Thunder Bay in, in League One Ontario. I mean, it might be possible if there was the financial ability to do it, but, um, you know, the OUA hockey plays up there, but there's a lot more money involved in that program. So I don't think they actually supplement the travel of the teams that come up. Yeah. So it would, it would be a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, Thunder you're Bay. About, you're talking about MLS type of travel for a League One Ontario team, if it goes that route. Yeah, it, it's you know an hour and a half flight. It's it's a long way away. It's a, again the size of Europe. Ontario is like the size of Europe, so it's a long ways. At any rate, um, Thunder. Last night when I reported this. Uh, a gentleman from Thunder Bay picked it up as well, and I'm just trying to get so I can give him credit. Uh, Lee's his first name. He works for Th- Thunder Bay newspaper. At any rate, he uh, reached out to the Chill and uh, in turn reported that that they have been told by the OSA that that they won't have to do this. That they will be granted some kind of exception. Now, in talking to people this morning, I'm not quite hearing it that black and white, and I have to be careful in how I report this because I'm still working with a few different things and I have to, you know, respect some competences. But um, I don't think this battle is done yet and I think it's going to get a little bit ugly before it gets clear in terms of the Thunder Bay situation. Now, a few things about Thunder Bay and this program. The Thunder Bay Chill are a very successful PDL program uh, that have operated for several years now, 
However, they're not exactly the most Canadian program. They have they're more than 50% of their roster are imported from outside of Canada. We're talking guys from like all over the world come into play on this program. So it's not particularly tied into the Canadian development system, which is why there's not a lot of sympathy for it when, when people are talking about trying to encourage them right now because they're, they're more than welcome to come join League One. It's kind of the attitude. But if they're not willing to you know, sort of play ball with the development side of things and reduce their import uh, – reliance and sort of focus on local kids, then, you know, there's not a lot of inclination to try and bend over backwards for them. Now, there's divides within Ontario soccer politics as it's politics. And I just said earlier that there's this province can be a disaster sometimes when it comes to the politics. So there are people that very strongly will be opposed to this. But at the same time, there are people pulling the other way equally. So this, despite the report in Thunder Bay, and I believe and I know for a fact that this is a conversation that happened up there, that they that they were um, given some reassurance. But I also know that that doesn't necessarily mean that this issue is done. And that's about as much as I can say about the today. But this is going to get uglier before it gets clear, as I said. Uh, it's going to be interesting to keep an eye on the situation to see what happens to the team in uh, 2017. Because uh, 2016 will be a very important year in the history of all those clubs. Yeah, and I, for record, I, as I wrote in CanadianSoccerNews.com yesterday, I uh, I did reach out to the USL. USL declined to comment on 2017, very politely, uh, said that they, they weren't going to comment beyond 2016, and then they just simply said that they would be fully supportive of the Ontario teams in the 2016 season. So there wasn't really, it was kind of a polite non-comment, but uh, that's what the USL had to say about it. Um, we'll continue to follow this, obviously. There's, it's going to be a developing story, and it's not going away anytime soon. I wouldn't even surprise me if, if the courts got involved with this one at some point. But that's me speculating right now. Um, that's not me reporting when I say that, to be clear. So we'll, we'll see. All right. Um, follow CanadianSoccerNews.com and my Twitter feed if you want to keep up with that stuff. I'll get the information out there as I find it. Uh, let's talk MLS a little bit to end the show, Kevin. Um, two conference finals start today. You know the format. Do you, do you like the – the two-leg format, Kevin? I do. I just don't like the international break between the two of them. That's just – it breaks the momentum of the playoff. It breaks the momentum of the teams too. They they have a two-week period off between uh, the two games. So it, it is a, a Debbie Downer, especially for a team that had a bye example in the first round, even though it's in midweek. You only play once. Then you play the week after. Then you're two weeks without playing. Uh, it feels weird and it just always cuts the momentum and it drags the season longer, which could be like two weeks more of vacation for the players. So uh, that international break is like at the worst time. I understand why, because then the teams in the playoff usually have the best players. Some of them do get called up for those international break, international games. So uh, I do understand why, but the timing of it is just maybe you should start earlier. I don't know what to do with it, but it, the timing just sucks. Yeah, well, no, there, there it's no easy solution because there's an international but other than get rid of the international break there's no solution to it um you're right though like i forgot like it's been so long that you almost forget that it's happening the games are sunday right so i anyway yeah like there's so much excitement with that second or that like you go that day where there's the four games in a row two yeah. weeks in a row, and there's a lot of intensity in that. Everyone's geared into it. Everyone's enjoying it. The games, you know, they vary in their quality like anything, but there's always, you know, over the course of your 12 hours of watching there or whatever. There's uh, drama at least this year. You're so, going to yeah. see something. There's drama, yeah, especially in the second legs. 
So, you know, it, it has all that momentum and then it just crashes. You know, to me, the answer is to reduce the playoffs and to have that, that you know, that four games. So the, it's an intensity. I think that that's the key. That's what I always like about, about the MLS playoffs is the first two weeks are really exciting and it's constant. It's bang, 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 bang. I think they need to condense the entire playoffs into a shorter period of time so that it has that bang, 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 NCAA kind of tournament feel to it. So you're just excited and it has all the momentum and then it's done. I don't care if the season ends November 13th or whatever. Um, it's a longer off season and may, some people will be upset with that. But to me, that will make a lot more sense. I don't know how you do that other than maybe either extend the regular season into November so you don't start it until after the international break and maybe now is when that, that sprint to the final start Maybe Or yeah. you... Sorry, here's an idea. Four teams per division, well, per conference make the playoff. And the break is between the conference finals and the actual finals. So you have time to raise the players, the stars, or everybody, and you reset the cards so all the stars, all the stars aren't playing in the finals. But uh, maybe that's the idea. You just cut down the wild card... Have those rounds, and then you have the international break, and then you would have the final like this Sunday. Which is the MLS Cup used to, well, when it was in Toronto, it was uh, 20, it was five years ago tomorrow, will be when the MLS Cup was in Toronto. So it used to end at this weekend for, for a long time. It was then. It's only been recently that it's trickled into December. And then when they expanded up to 34 games from 30. Um, you know, they could go to 38 games, I suppose. Uh, and that might be something that happens down the line. And in that case, again, your playoffs might be starting right now. And, you know, I'm looking out the window. You could play. It would be fine to play in most climates in, in MLS into November. It'd be much. It's actually better to play into November than it would be to start in day yeah. early March or February, as some people have suggested. So, Especially going um, I think that might with be climate some, change, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in a couple of years, it'll still be 25 degrees. Well, it's still 15 today, so there you go. Yeah, I know. I just went out in a footy before the show, but at any rate. Um, anyway, enough of the, the format stuff. Yeah, well, last look. My favorite – I always favor reducing the playoffs. I think right now with 20 teams, six is the right number for a playoff. Um, I understand that you want to have a certain amount of intrigue and battle down the line because there's no relegation battle and don't get into that crap today. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, I understand the need to include teams – that you keep interest in the lower level teams. But at the same time, if you're really crashing out, you're not going to have that much interest anyway. Like, it's not like there was a lot of intrigue in Chicago down the stretch this year. Um, and, uh, Chicago made a clean slate yesterday, by the way. So, yeah. Um, I like uh, the, the uh, top three two plays three, winners play one, winners play. That, uh, that's what I like for a format as well. And you could condense that and easily condense that into two, two weeks. All right. Uh, I don't know. We talked a lot about sort of our, our thoughts of, of the, the teams prior to the last round. Um, I don't know what more to say right now in terms of the, you know, who surprises you? Of the four teams left, who really surprises you that are there, Kevin? Portland, uh, because of the way they're playing team. Yeah, they got lucky along the way with penalties and everything. But uh, uh, Portland has a confidence in them. Dallas as well. So that Western Conference final is going to be interesting. In the East, New York seems to me to be the favorite. Yeah, they finished first and they got the supporters' shield, all that. Uh, but it is a team that is well-drilled, well-coached, well-oiled, and is very confident. It's a team based of 
every single player, not just one. And Columbus is almost the same too. There's not one big star. Yes, they got the Iguain and Sauron now in the defense, but it's a team in itself and they're peaking at the right time. So I expect fireworks in that game, especially for the second leg in New York, a sold out Red Bull Arena for the conference final second leg. That's going to be a one heck of a game. And I expect New York to probably come out on top of that uh, second leg of home field advantage. Yeah, yeah. Portland's a team that's surprising you in there, and they are certainly have the the momentum going for them right now. Um, I really like that Dallas team. I I, I think that they're being underestimated a little bit. Um, that said, speaking of underestimated, all year no one has given New York the, the respect it deserves. I think I mean, they just do. They just keep winning, and maybe it's time to to come. You know, wrap your head around the fact that the Metro Stars are about to win the MLS Cup. That, you know, that's so Metro. That's so not Metro. Yeah, exactly. But uh, Jesse March, first year coach of the New York Red Bulls, uh, I think he deserves to get that cup. And they did the one crazy year in New York. There's a video out there on the, the Red Bulls New York uh, feed made. I think it's a movie that's coming out from where the Mike Pecky got fired up till the Supporters' Shield win. And it's just... Great roller coaster of emotion that's peaking at the right time. Is there any? Uh, it's a long way past now, but is there any sort of like hindsight remorse on the fact that Marsh has done so well in Montreal? And like in Montreal now, is there any hindsight remorse that he's Marsh has done so well in his first year in New York? No, uh, no, because of the fact that it's far removed from when he was here and when he got fired, and Montreal's had two coaches since then. So because of that fact, there's not a, a remorse. I think people are happy in Montreal for Jesse March because he was always loved in Montreal. He always treated the city with respect, and he was always respected by the players and by the fans. And if you to this day, when he came to uh, Statsaputo for the games this year, he was taking pictures with Montreal fans and uh, this coming in and coming out of Statsaputo. So he still has a great relationship with the fans of Montreal and, and there's no hard feelings and no uh, jealousy towards uh, the Red Bulls. I think there's a friendship type of rivalry now because of him and Felipe that are in New York. So it creates a different dynamic, but there's no hard feelings. Sometimes Joey's passion gives you good things and sometimes Joey's passion might make some mistakes, but uh, time moves on and, and Montreal fans uh, wish him well, as I hear all right, Kevin, any final thoughts today before we uh, we call it a show? No, I'm all good here, and it's been... Uh, uh, we know we're having some uh, connection problem here and there. The sound might be jumpy here and there. We're doing our best to uh, put everything back to normal, so just bear with us, but uh, everything is just great. All righty. Kevin? <laughs> Until next time, uh, watch out next week for the debut of our brand new basketball show myself and benoit lelievre are doing a post a pre-production job right now tuesday night should be the first edition of the new basketball show here on the sports podcasting network and until next time have a great soccer